And he said to me, he said, Glenn, how come you don't dress like a punk anymore? And before I could say anything, his wife said, that's because Glenn's moved on and you haven't. You're listening to Having a Chat, the show where we take interesting people with interesting taste in music and talk to them about the music that they love. I'm your host, Alex Spears, and this week on the show, we are talking to the Sex Pistols' Glenn Matlock. In addition to his time in the Sex Pistols, Glenn has played in a wide range of bands, uh, from the Rich Kids to the Spectres, to a brief stint as the bass player for Iggy Pop. We've talked about both him and his music a lot on the show, so we're very excited to have him here to chat with us about some music. This is Having a Chat. Alex, message from James uh, from the Oasis podcast. Hope you're well. Uh, just wanted to say well done for some of the amazing guests you've had on recently. Uh, I mean, Alan McGee, Peter Hook, Gaz Whelan, fantastic. You know, really good stuff. Um, you know, and uh, legends of British music and Manchester music, especially, which is obviously something that I'm interested in. Um, so, a couple of questions for you. Number one, how do you get such great guests? I mean, seriously, I've been trying to get Peter Hook and Clint Boone uh, for months, years even. I've never got them. What are you doing that I'm not? And also, any guests in particular that you are desperate to get on that you haven't yet? It would be really interesting to hear uh, who's on your hit list. All right, um, just to let everyone know, if they want to check out the Oasis podcast, if they're big fans of Oasis, it is at Oasis podcast across social media and anywhere you can find uh, your podcasts. Oh, and I'm starting a new one as well on the film Trainspotting. So if that's something you're interested in, then uh, at Choose Life Pod is the place to find that. All right. All the best, guys. All right. Thanks very much, James. We appreciate the love. And uh, as he said, if you're looking for uh, for some great Brit pop and Oasis listening, check out the Oasis podcast, wherever you can find your podcasts. Uh, and to answer your questions, um, the secret, you know, it, it you know, I kind of like to, to mess with people and say it's like the caramel secret. We'll never tell. But really, it just boils down to persistence, sending the email and sending lots and lots of follow ups. Uh, and then as for, you know, who's on my hit list? Obviously, you know, the big uh, the big Gallagher brothers would be an absolute dream. Uh, but, uh, you know, I'd also love to love to speak to Damon, uh, love to speak to anybody and everybody who has had a significant impact on music uh but then on top of that you know people uh people who are making cool music that uh that may not uh have the biggest spotlight on them they are always welcome on this show so uh so anyway uh thanks heaps to james and uh and on with the show the first thing so we're, we're gonna we're gonna kick things off the way we the way we do the show is we kick things off and end the show with uh some tunes of yours um, and we're going to kick things off with a Sex Pistols tune. Um, oh, we're going to... What's that? I said, uh-oh. <laughs> well, I've kind of grown out of that, you know. No, I... Did, I... I did a gig. Some little, I've done lots of little acoustic shows as well, doing band things. And I did a gig and this punk came up to me, elderly punk with his missus. And his missus looked like she worked in a bank. Right. And he looked like punk rocker and his trousers were a bit too tight. His bondage trousers were a bit too tight and his shirt was a bit too tight and his mohawk was that. And his shirt like, looked like she'd just ironed it nicely for him. And he said to me, he said, Glenn, how come you don't dress like a punk anymore? And before I could say anything, his wife said, that's because Glenn's moved on and you haven't. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm with you. I'm not one to, to dwell on the past too much. Um, but... The, the the reason you know we're gonna we're gonna listen to anarchy in the uk and the reason for that is just because it, it is perhaps the you know e each each episode each week we ask our guests to pick some tunes for us and anarchy in the uk is perhaps the most selected song on the show um you know w from just a, an enormous range of guests um so the the first thing i thought we could do there, there's there's a few rumors 
um, sort of swirling around. Uh, and many of these I know the answer to, but I thought we could sort of set the record straight on a couple of these. Um, and the first one is one that was mentioned by a guest on the show. We had the lead singer from a Canadian punk rock band called The Dirty Nil on the show. And his claim was that had the Sex Pistols done a second album, it would not have been anywhere near as good because you would not have been writing the songs on it. What is little understood about the Sex Pistols is that um, their principal songwriter has was ejected from the band before they even recorded the bulk of the album, right. uh, Glenn Matlock. So they didn't even right. have the capacity to write right. any more songs. <laughs> Yeah. And their best recordings that they ever made have Glenn Matlock playing the bass on them. Like Anarchy in the UK and God Save the Queen have Glenn Matlock's playing the bass. Wow. And uh, the rest of the songs on the album, um, which were made after those two songs, were, if, if, if I'm correcting my information, like they don't yeah. sound nearly as good as those first two songs. Uh, do you, uh, <laughs> what, what do you make of, oh, okay. uh, of such a claim? Right. That's the, okay, that's nice that you said that. And it means that I've been sort of kind of appreciated. Um, I didn't write all the songs. I, I, I wrote lots of the good bits that made them catchy and which gave John a, 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 um, a doorway to a bigger audience because he himself, he said, if he'd had it all his way, it would have been unlistenable. Right. Be like public image, some of it. Um, and I've kind of, I, I, from the songs I picked out, you know, I like a well-constructed pop song, but I like a pop song of some kind of, consequence you know and John wrote most of the lyrics didn't write them all I wrote pretty vacant that's my lyric you know but mm -hmm. Anarchy in the UK is pretty out there but what he was trying to achieve by those lyrics I don't really know and I don't really know that he knows <laughs> fair enough fair so but the second album yeah maybe for that reason it would have been I think most bands second albums aren't so great <laughs> the third album is normally an improvement. Most bands' first albums are really good because they've learnt to play, they've written those songs, they've gone out on the road, they've whittled out the ones that didn't really work. Right. You know, it's at least two years in the thing. Next thing, they, they get a record deal if they're lucky and they have to go and make a second album without doing all of that. And then the third album, they go back to the way they did the first album and the third album is normally a bit better than the second. But I, I think the answer to that is that you should just put, do the third album second. Right. <laughs> if only it were that easy. Yeah. Um, so the next thing I wanted to ask just you a, about... Just a thought. Yeah, yeah, of course, of course. So the there was... There's this great um, music podcast uh, with a guy called Alan Cross, The Ongoing History of New Music. And, and he sort of did this episode talking about sort of rock and roll legend and sort of rumors and things like that. And he discussed uh, a sort of a, a take from you where you where you said that uh, swearing on TV should be banned. So I was wondering if you might set the well, record straight for us on that. I didn't say it should be banned. I, I said I don't think it's bigger, clever, and I don't think it's an end in itself. Right. We, we, we was famous for swearing on TV, but we didn't go out to swear on TV. It, it just evolved that way. We'd never been on TV before, hardly. Didn't really realise where we were. Steve Jones drunk a bottle of Blue Nun cheap German Riesling wine to himself. The bloke picked on us, and it just all came out like that. But I think the difference with us was that we actually collectively had something to say somehow. Right. And swearing was not the main thing. It was a byproduct of it. But we could back it up because we were about something. Yeah. And I think lots of people just think they throw in a few F words or a C word or something like that. And that's the end of it in itself. And it's outrageous. So it's not really outrageous anymore. Right. So, so like, the, the, basically the argument is that Swearing for its own sake is is not is not worth I, it. But if I, you yeah, back I always say swearing isn't big or clever unless it's in the right hands. Right, brilliant. <laughs> That's a very good quote. Um, and then and then the last one, and you know, and, and I and again, this one I know the answer to, um, but I'm I'm keen to have you sort of set the record straight on this for us. Uh, were you booted from the band for liking the Beatles? No, that was something that Malcolm McLaren made up afterwards. I, I get a bit fed up with this after 
I mean, must have done, 2020 now, right? Yeah. I left the band in early 1977. So I mean, that's 43 years ago. Same old yeah. question. But no, I left the band because John became somebody different. Yeah. Yeah. No. Uh, and, and I, I personally felt, I mean, you know, back then, it's, it's different now because we're older and we can all come with accommodation to each other. But back then, I thought he was, he'd sort of become the people that we were railing against in the first place. Right. Yeah. Fair enough. But well, I was 19 going on 20, you know, you don't always see the wood for the trees and there's lots of other things, but the whole Beatles thing was made up by Malcolm McLaren afterwards to make him look like he was in control when I actually walked from the band. Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, and it, it's, it's always, I think tricky, you know, just w- with things like this where there's rumors swirling around and, and it's just, you kind of never really know who to believe. Yeah. But, but I think when we were reformed in 1996 to do a world tour, you know, and play in front of hundred times more people than we did first time around, they could have asked any other bass player in the world to do it. And yeah. asked me. So there you go. It's, yeah, it's, absolutely. Well, so, and, and I'm, I'm glad that you, you, you mentioned crowd size. So uh, a, a great fascination of mine um, is, uh, is this gig that you guys played at the Lesser Free Trade Hall in Manchester. That's something that we we kind of keep coming back to on this show. Um, and it's kind of funny because it, it's the type of thing where it seems like everyone and their mother says that they were there, um, mm. but there were only 40 people in the audience. So that no, but, but those 40 people were, though. They went on to become very influential people. No doubt. That's the difference, you know. Right. So, I mean, and, and, and I, and, and that is, you know, as I say, a a great source of fascination for me, you know, I, I, I worship at the altar of Tony Wilson and, uh, and, and I'm just a massive fan of the Buzzcocks and Joy Division. Did that gig have any significance for you at the time or did it just feel like another gig? Bit of another gig, really. Right. It, it was important. It was important for us because it was one of our first sort of forays out of London, and so mm-hmm. went, went on. Do you know what I remember about that gig more than anything else? We got yeah. there, kind of a bit late because it's a long way. Did the sound check, and I was hungry, so I wandered around the corner. Never been to Manchester before. It's right in the middle of town. Beautiful theatre. We didn't have a rider or anything. I went around mm-hmm. to get some fish and chips. And I got through the three or four people in the queue, and I said, what fish have you got? And he said, fish. And I said, no, but what kind of fish? Um, you know, cod? Do you have haddock? Because I prefer haddock. And he said, no, it's fish. I said, you must know what kind of fish it is. And he said, you're trying to be funny. And and it was like a, just a different world in Manchester. That's, that's what I remember about that gig more than anything else, apart from the fact I don't think that was the first gig. It was the second time the, the Buzzcocks organised the gig, so they right. had someone to support so they could play, and they weren't ready. And then we did another one. They did that, and that was the original lineup of How Devoto singing and Pete right. Shelley had a guitar, but it was not the body of it. There was only half of it. Right. And I said, "Why don't you cut it off?" Or he said, "Oh, I didn't cut it off. It fell off." <laughs> and that's all they had. They had nothing, you know, but they were yeah. still going to do it anyway. Yeah, no, and, and, they, and ended, they ended the set with boredom, you know, with a two-note guitar solo. Band. Yeah. And went, on and on and on and on and on and on. And it finished when How Devoto pulled his lead out. It was great. It was really good. Yeah, yeah. I love the Buzzcocks. Yeah, cool. me too. I mean, it's like, they I, had a whole different thing going on, you know. Yeah. It was still punk. And to me, punk was like a really broad church. Lots of people could do lots of different things, you know. Right. Yeah, I mean, and it's it's interesting, just something that we've talked about with guests on the show in the past is sort of like trying to get out from that umbrella because it, it seems to have become, you know, it, it's no longer, you know, and, and I'm not going to, you know, describe their feelings on it as well as they would, but it, it's it's kind of become a thing where there's, there's it's such a loaded term. Um, you know, so, so we had, the, we had this Australian punk rock band on and they, and they insist on calling themselves shed rock, uh, because they just, they can't stand the punk moniker. So I, I guess, you know, just a follow up to that is like, how, what do you see as like the defining attributes of the genre? Um, defining, well, I, I think punk, I'm lucky enough. I sort of get invited to do things all around the world. The last few years I've been to Palestine. I've, 
I did a gig on um, in the DMZ or DMZ zone between mm-hmm. North and South Korea wow. with some Korean bands there. I was like a guest, and you know they kind of thought they were punks, and they weren't really punks like what I know. But people see punk around the world as a, as a kind of a an alternative kind of this for people who right. maybe a bit hipper and a bit more not so sort of radical, but just want to read between the lines and won't let the people grind you down, you know, yeah. and they're not too accepting. And I, I think if you think that's what punk is, that's fine. But there was stuff before punk that was like that, you know, Frank yeah. Zappa and the, the hippie movement. I mean, some of it was kind of a bit like, you know, large flowers in your own or that. But a lot of it was a reaction to the Vietnam War and then yeah. they got some things done. Yeah. So maybe they were punks that just had a different name and they had flared trousers. we get into the young rascals you and you've had such a you know lengthy career doing so many interesting projects but one of the things that you did is you played with iggy pop how did that come about and and i guess perhaps you know he called, he called, he called me up and asked me right, right. it was that I, simple i got the gig with him because um um he made that new values album mm-hmm. and a guy who played bass on the album was going to play second guitar on the tour. They were short of a bass player. And his agent was a guy called John Giddings, who now puts on the 
Isle of Wight Festival, and he'd been my agent for the Rich Kids, which had just broken up. Right. So he knew that I wasn't doing anything. Right. And I was set, I broke the band up because Midge and Rusty wouldn't become new romantics. In fact, they started the whole new romantic thing. Right. And I didn't really know what I was going to do. And I was sitting at home thinking, what, what on earth am I going to do now? Wouldn't it be great if the phone rang? And it rang. Right. And this guy said, his Glam Outlook there. And then, you know, this is in the days before mobile phones. Right. And um, it was Glam Outlook there. And I said, yeah, speaking, who are you? And he said, well, you won't know me, but my name's Peter Davis and I manage Iggy Pop. We're here in London. Jim's in town. Can he speak to you? And I did. And I said, what are you doing? He said, well, we're in town. Can we meet up and have a drink or something? And I said, where? And he said, the Athenaeum Hotel, which is a fancy hotel opposite the Ritz in Piccadilly. Right. I said, who's buying? And he said, we are. So, so I was down there an half an hour. Next thing I'm on tour with Iggy. And it was kind of interesting because everything I'd done up to then with the Rich Kids and the Pistols, which is about the only two things I'd really done by then, we didn't really have proper roadies and things. It was just mates, you know. We, right. we had gear. We didn't have leads that worked and all that. And Iggy had been touring for years with right. a proper crew and sound checks and a rider backstage and proper rehearsals and somebody booking flights. And I'd never done that. So <laughs> next thing, I'm on tour with Iggy Pop all around Europe. And then when first time I came to America was with Iggy Pop. First time I went to Canada was with Iggy Pop. Right. So... Yeah, it was good. I enjoyed working with him. But, and I wish I could, I could have worked with him longer. But there was a guy from Arista Records called Charles Leveson, who was the managing director of Arista Records. And he said, what are you doing? And I said, well, you know what I'm doing. I'm playing the biggie. And he said, yeah, but you write all these songs and stuff. Mm -hmm. He said, you sure you, that's what you're doing? I said, why? And he said, well, if you had another project, we'd be more than interested in it. I went, oh. So I started putting this thing together with perspectives. Right. And I was a bit daft, really. I could have just recalled, done some recording, see if he liked them and that, and continued playing with Iggy. But I always have to do one thing at a time. So I blew Iggy out, and I wish I hadn't done, really. Right. You know, because, yeah. Yeah. All right. Very, very I, cool. I think he's kind of, Iggy is kind of America's greatest living poet. Or yeah. One of them. Yeah. No, I, I would certainly agree with that assessment. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm interested in this too. Another thing, though, he, yeah. at that time, he was going through a phase of flashing on stage. Ah. Right? But when you're going to flash on stage, it, it would appear, this is what I've learned from working with Iggy, before you fl flash and wiggle it at the audience, you have to turn your back on your audience and get ready to flash it. And he always <laughs> did it in front of me. And I got fed up with seeing his... Oh man, <laughs> that was that, that was a big um, that was a, a big part of me not playing with them anymore. Yeah, well, that's certainly uh, worth noting, I suppose. Um, all right, so so what do you what do you like and, about? And also along those lines, there was a band in from Liverpool around the time I was playing with them called Those Naughty Lumps, and they got a song called Iggy Pop's Jacket, right? Right. He goes, Iggy Pop's jacket. He says it's made of leather. Iggy Pop's jacket, but I know better because it was <laughs> leather act. They, they reckon they found his... Well, I see Iggy's thing. It's not that impressive. So. Right. <laughs> well, you heard it here first, I suppose. Um, all right, so what do, you, what do you like about the Young Rascals? Okay, I just think it's the perfect pop song. It's yeah. up, grooving. It is. You know, I picked that one because now... The clocks go forward next weekend or the weekend after. It's pissing down with rain. It's dark already. Yeah. Grooving on a sunny afternoon. Yeah. Yeah. And it's production, you know. And, and the grooving, just the groove of it was great. Yeah. So what do you think makes a perfect pop tune? Like what 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 sort of, what are like the, the criteria, like all the boxes that you need to tick off uh, for you to consider something a perfect pop tune? Well, a lyric of some consequence, but it doesn't have to be "I love you, you love me," or "Bring down the government." There's lo there's many shows in between. It's it's got to be about something really clear. It's got a good tune. It's got a great kind of orchestration and construction, and and, and create a vibe. Right. Right. As soon yeah. as that song yeah. comes on, I'm in a different place. Sunday afternoon We 
Um, and so, so next up, we're going to talk about Marvin Gaye. Um, so we, we actually had um, uh, Gaz Whalen, the drummer from the Happy Mondays on the show. Um, and, uh, and he, he picked Anarchy in the UK, but he also picked this tune. Um, and it's always cool when we have different people picking the same tunes because we can kind of get a sense of sort of, you know, where people stand on the same thing. So, uh, so what do you like about, uh, about Marvin Gaye? And perhaps do you see this song as having a bit more resonance given the sort of the current political upheaval that's uh, yeah, being seen around the world? That's exactly why I picked it. You know, what is going on at the moment? You know, we're in a cusp in this country of a, well, we've had a right-wing coup, basically. You know, mm -hmm. we've got the whole Trump debacle going on, Bolzano in South America, uh, again in Turkey, wherever it is, mm -hmm. and there's lots of people just not don't realise what's being done to them, and they're voting for it, and they're enabling it. You know what's yeah. going on? Yeah. So, I mean, like, what what do you like? How how political do you think sort of mainstream music should be? I mean, it, it, it strikes me as something where th th there's kind of a line to it, right? Like, you don't want to be too overtly political. You want to deal with you well, know. you want to get you want to try and get your record on the radio, right? You know, when we was touring with the Pistols, I mean, this is twenty years ago now, but the manager called up Radio One in England, saying, "Why don't you play Anarchy in the UK during the day?" And they just wrote the lyrics back to her, right? You know, there's your answer. You know, you're not going to get daytime playing, but if you got if you're kind of clever about it, yeah, you might do, but you can still get a message across. Right. Yeah, and you know, then, and you're very lucky if you've got a, if you can get a record away and you've got something that seeps into people's consciousness. Yeah. That's a clever way of using your message, you know. I think if you're too overtly political, it turns people off because basically pop music for most people, I think, is a release and not yeah. a lecture. Right. <laughs> you know? Far too many of you die. You know we've got to find a way to bring some loving here today. Father, Father, we don't need to escalate. You see, war is not the answer for only love. Lights 
wicked signs. Don't punish me with brutality. Talk to me so you can see. Yeah, that's right. Um, all right, so next we're gonna um, we're gonna listen to a tune by uh, by Mose Allison. Um, what do you like about Mose Allison? Um, well, I think it's a great songwriter, fantastic pianist. It seems like he was the darling of the beatniks at one stage. Um, <laughs> his, his lyrics to his songs sort of kind of fit in with the. The jazz thing. I mean, I've been listening to a lot of jazz more than anything else, but it's that, that I can't, they're not lucky, but they express without words what people are feeling. But he actually put some of those feelings in into words, and he was very influential. Like there would have been, there wouldn't have been my generation by the Who right. without Mose Allison. Right. They even did a version of Young Man Blues, which he wrote. But it's, he's got a different groove. It's like a polka kind of beat. Yeah. Like cool beat. One, two. And think of my generation. Bam, 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 bam. Yeah. It's, it's, it's like that. I actually saw a thing. I've always thought that. And I saw some TV thing with Pete Townsend saying that. You know, the Yardbirds did I'm Not Talking right. as well. I like it. And the lyrics are great. I, you know, no matter what you say these days, people tend to pick holes in it. I'm not yeah. talking. Bum, 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 I gotta say. Passive things splendid. Someone would be offended. Yeah. yeah, just dig it, man, daddy -o. Just how good the things that really matter don't mix 
without a chatter And that's one thing that I can do That simple. Um, all right. So, uh, last of your song choices um, uh, is the the small faces with all or nothing. What do you like about the faces? Well, this is the small faces. It's it's different. I I, I always end my sets these days with a song, and I think you just got to. I mean, it's probably about a girl. This song originally, but just the phrase "all or nothing" is where we're at. You know, right. So I actually, and, and this is perhaps just a gaping hole in my musical knowledge, I didn't realize that they were different bands. Um, I had always... Well, I think in the States, when they when the Faces became the Small Faces, they did the tour and it was still billed as the Small Faces. Right. What it, what, what it was, was they were the Small Faces and then Steve, Steve Marrett, who was the best rock singer ever, right. he left to form Humble Pie. Gotcha. The DC ripped off, right? And they've admitted that, right? You know, the whole idea, two guitars and a bloke with a really high voice. They had two mm. guitars and a really high voice, which was Steve Marrett. He left. The other guys didn't quite know what to do. And they met Ronnie Wood and tried him out as a singer, which wasn't going to work. But he brought his mate along, which was Rod Stewart. Right. And he sang with them. But, and I, I never knew, I always thought the Small Faces was a silly name. Right. Many years ago, I was talking to Bernard Rhodes, who managed to clash, who was older than me and was from the 60s. And he said, no, it's a great name. He said, small, they're little guys. And they are little guys. They're like five foot two. Right. And he said, a face was somebody who was on the scene. You know, they was like, you see people in clubs, you know, yeah. and they were happening people. He was a face. So yeah. they were small faces. When Rod Stewart and Ronnie Wood joined, they weren't so small anymore because they were taller. <laughs> So they were just the faces. <laughs> but they were still faces because they were people who had always been on the scene. Yeah. So that's a really good name. Like I want them to yeah. If 
so next we're going to talk about the band. Um, another another group that has been you know selected a lot for the sort of our, our Canadian content uh, section on this show. Uh, certainly a favorite of mine. Um, and their their last waltz album was just uploaded to one of the big Canadian streaming services, which has uh, sort of renewed my affection for them. But what do you like about the band? They're just the playing, that's kind of heartfelt content in their songs. It's also, I don't know if I should say this or not, I will, but there was a bloke who used to live in my neighbourhood who had stuff that would keep you through the night and he would never get the good stuff out now until you'd watched the last walks all the way through. You know, this was in the right. early days of the videos and I must have seen it about a hundred times waiting for him to get the good stuff out. <laughs> <laughs> right. I well, love that. In that movie, there's a bit where I think Neil Diamond does a thing and he's good and he, he thinks he's blown off Bob Dylan or somebody like that. You know, yeah, beat that, he goes to Bob Dylan. <laughs> yeah. So uh, we're gonna we're gonna end the show um, with uh, a tune from your latest solo record. Couldn't give a damn. Um, really, really great. Just kind of rock and roll pop tune. I really enjoyed listening to this one. Um, what uh, what can you tell us about What's this wrong tune? With the other ones? Pardon me. What was wrong with the other one? Well, <laughs> oh, I liked listening oh, my, to my, my favorite track on that album is is actually called "Speak Too Soon." Okay. okay. 
but I, but I, you know, I like, we can I, do I, speak too soon. That works. That works I'm for me. I like that one. Heaps I, too. I won't complain, but I, I, I like and couldn't give a damn. Um, it's just, you know, life can be tough lyrically. But if, if you feel you're with the right person, you know, what, going to get a bit Shakespearean here, but if you're with the right person, the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune, fortune don't seem to matter matter quite so much you know and you've you got a bit of a united front yeah yeah, yeah. too easy man love it um all righty well that's uh that, that's that's it for us today um before we wrap things up uh I, we always like to give uh our guests just an opportunity to plug anything that they've got going on i mean obviously gigs are not really happening but uh what can you tell the people about uh where to find you what to expect from you that's well you can check this latest record out um good to go it's been out about two years now but yeah. it's still an unheard masterpiece to most people around the world <laughs> so check me out on amazon or spotify or itunes and there's some good stuff there there's an album for that um what was it called born running that's more yeah. of a rock album this album it's, it's got some great people like slim jim phantom plays most of the drums in it and l slate and chris bedding guests on a track and stuff so there you go yeah. and then i'm actually at the moment i've recorded a new album but we have to see what happens with this year before it comes out hopefully next year now yeah you know which again is a bit more of a departure so. yeah fair enough all righty man love it Alrighty, thank you very much to Glenn Matlock for joining us this week. Uh, you can check out full versions of the show wherever you get your podcast. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. The show is produced by myself and Hillary Johnson. All social media and marketing materials are done by Petra Walker, so don't forget to check us out on social media at Having a Chat. And to wrap up this week's show, this is Glenn Matlock with Couldn't Give a Damn. Go back.